Okay, welcome everybody. We are back at the Solidarity Hall podcast known as Dorothy's Place. And I'm happy to announce that my colleague Pete Davis is back in action. Pete, great to... So glad to be here. Glad to be back at Dorothy's Place. <laughs> Good to see you again. We have a special guest. All our guests are special, but especially this guest, um, Fred Dewey. And I will introduce him rather formally uh, as follows. He's the author of The School of Public Life, a book we will be discussing shortly. And he is a political and cultural activist. In the um, aftermath of the Rodney King riots in 1992, Fred helped lead a decade-long and successful effort to establish neighborhood councils, now about 100 of them, for the city of Los Angeles. Until 2010, he was the director of Beyond Baroque, which is a poetry and cultural center in Venice, California, where projects included bringing segregated neighborhoods into dialogue through poetry. Over the last decade, Fred has conducted free public working groups in California and across Europe at community centers, squats, schools, and other sites using the writings of Hannah Arendt. In 2017, his Portable Polis project met at 10 different sites across the city of Berlin with Arendt texts on the purposes of each. Fred is based in Los Angeles and Brussels for reasons perhaps he'll explain. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, uh, Fred Dewey. It's great to be here, really great. We will mention briefly that this is our second conversation with Fred. We also have a workshop uh, up with Fred at the uh, YouTube channel for Solidarity Hall, which is a very enjoyable conversation with multiple collocators. Um, but in that conversation, somehow we didn't quite get to Fred's book, neither his current book nor the impending one. So we're hoping today- I love that word impending. It sounds very <laughs> forbidding. That's yep. exactly what I'm afraid of, impending. No, 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 no. no, that. no. It, will, it will be good. It will be good. So, so Fred, uh, welcome. and um, Thank you so much, Elias and Pete. Both of you, it's wonderful to be here. Great to uh, connect again. I like Fred, why, you're going to explain why you got so little sleep last night. Well, one of the things about that I, I'm going to start out with something controversial. One of the things I don't like about activists is don't gasp, please. <laughs> is they're monomaniacal. And one of the things that um, I cherish is my enjoyment of culture. Uh, yeah. And my benefit from culture and all the things that that brings. And it brings many things. So I was, I, I became a, I broke my uh, online streaming virginity last night, <laughs> yesterday, to join Mubi, which is a wonderful art film site. And I spent more time than I wish to uh, say watching foreign films. <laughs> One of them being the, the work of the extraordinary Belgian director, Chantal Ackerman. Now, that's kind of outside of the mainstream for sure, but I think one of the things that is so important, and I was thinking about one of your guiding spirits, Wendell Berry, who talks about what he's learned from farming and dealing with the land and dealing with everything connected to it. Well, culture is a word that Arndt, Hannah Arendt talks about. It's actually coming from agriculture. Yeah. And... <laughs> Excuse me. So I sort of relate to your uh, Pete. You're scratching your head. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I literally have a head scratch. It's not intellectually based. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Um, I think that um, for me, culture is like having my having a, a, a family have a private farm you know, or whatever. I mean, it's, it's something I tend, it's something I cultivate. It's, it feeds me, it nourishes me. It allows me to talk to other people in the community. It's, it's so valuable. It's incredibly valuable. 
And, you know, I, I mean, there's times when I'm in political meetings where I'm just like, can we just stop and read a poem or something here? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kidding, but uh, because political meetings can be very serious, but, but I'm also not kidding because culture is, and as you know, from having read the book, which we'll talk about, it's a crucial part of my life. And I also think it's a crucial part of this thing I talk about in, in the pamphlet that's in the book that was really the start of the book called Polis for New Conditions. Because um, this interaction with others face-to-face -face is crucial. And I learned something really fundamental at Beyond Baroque um, about the importance of orality, what, what academics call orality, which is really a fancy word for people talking. Mm -hmm. um, and I experienced so much live poetry curating the center. I mean, you know, a couple thousand readings I did. I mean, I hosted and curated. <clears throat> I suddenly, you know, I had the experience a lot of people have with poetry, which is, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like taking castor oil and, um, I still have a couple friends. I've, I keep sending them poetry books and they're like, one of them said to me, Fred, I don't like poetry. Stop <laughs> sending me poetry books. <laughs> um, well, the thing is I joined beyond Baroque. This is a circuitous answer to your, not your, was it a question? Anyway, yeah. um, I, wanted to run a public space. I'd written on public space uh, for the local alternative weekly, may it rest in peace. And one of the experiences I had was that they cut out all the political stuff from it. And one of the things for Arndt is that public space is a political thing. It's the metaphor for it is a table, which is a real world object that you sit around that keep, relates, she quote unquote, relates and separates us. And it's got to be in the world. And, you know, there's a lot of, oh, there's endless public, um, excuse me, endless lip service to the word public space, but very little real, I mean, there's no respect for the words in the sense that public space is the space for the life of the people. So what's the life of the people? Buying hot dogs and, you know, veggie burgers in a public square? No, or, you know, I mean, it's wonderful to come together that way, but for Hannah Arendt, that, that would be called a social gathering. Public space to me is where people come together to govern their conditions, period. And poetry, interestingly, because that governing of conditions that we all experience and are in, we're all in the world. Um, that's what we were talking about in the uh, workshop, which was so beautiful, wonderful that you guys hosted. Um, politics is concerned with meaning. Poetry is concerned with meaning. And I think culture is concerned with meaning. Mm -hmm. So these things are woven together. And, and, and when you're an activist, and this is why I, it's so funny because I've struggled with this. People ask me for short bios and it's like, how do I describe myself? I would love to take your term, Pete, super citizen, but <laughs> uh, from the workshop. Um, it was very flattering. Uh, I'm not super, although my avatar that I created for the book Freedom X was kind of like, that was the super citizen. I was like thinking, you know, I, I'm so vividly remember jumping off the uh, couch in my living room when I was eight years old in my little Superman outfit. And, um, you know, I just, <laughs> so I created this avatar called Freedom X. But, and that was a cultural move in the book. And it was a cultural move in my life because I use it as the title <clears> of the <throat> column. Anyway, Beyond Baroque was, I took it on because it was a public space. Hmm. And <clears throat> I took it on actually after I started the neighborhood council work. And they were completely separate tracks. The neighborhood council stuff was, I mean, most of those people have probably never read a poem and they probably don't like poetry and they probably don't go to movies like I do. I mean, I love movies. I was up until way too late last night watching them. I've even worked on movies. And um, I just think that 
The point of this is that politics is about all of us. It's about ordinary people. It's about people who are living their lives, who are really stressed for time. They've got this and that. And these are all things they can bring to bear. They should bring to bear in politics, in coming together with others, in trying to figure out how do we have better conditions? How do we govern our conditions? Because um, there's so many processes, I, that's the only word I can think of, that are geared to steering us away from that. It's like politics is what we see on TV. Politics is what we see in political conventions. Politics is what we see in parties. Politics is what we see in the White House. My God, every 40 seconds we're seeing it in the White House. Well, where's our politics? Where's the politics for the people? Where's the public life of the people? And that's why the book starts out with what about in italics, the people. So, and, 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 and we don't realize the stakes here in this confusion. So I wanted to take on a center where I could bring people together around something that there were enough people who were interested in poetry, but I also did, like I brought in Robert Fisk from The Independent, a wonderful international journalist, um, Tariq Ali. I mean, we had amazing poets from all over the world, all over the world, Asia, North Africa, South America, Central America. Um, nobody from Antarctica yet, but soon it will be melted and there'll be poets living there. Um, <laughs> but people from everywhere, and more importantly, people from around Los Angeles. And at the same time, and this is this really goes to a subject that, you know, preparing for this wonderful conversation with you two, and I'll let you ask a question in a second, but um, is I realized last night thinking about this, that I actually have some sort of weird, I don't want to call it a fascination, but a, a tendency or a need, I guess, to dig, to go to the root, to go to the roots of things. And I, you know, there's a wonderful uh, Swedish philosopher, Lindquist, who talks about dig where you stand. It's the foundation of a whole historiographical movement. Um, a beautiful lost movement. Oh, you know about this. <laughs> yeah, no, this, it's a wonderful one. I just learned about it last month. It's um, unbelievable. Person. It was basically for the listeners who don't know, and tell me if I'm getting this right, Fred, it's, uh, it's basically said, research the history of like your direct area around you. So if you're like working in a factory, oh, research, hello. research yeah. the strikes that happened 40 years ago in that factory. Yeah. Yes. Or, um, and, and they had like tens of thousands of participants. Yes. Wow. Well, it's Jeez. percolated Amazing. around, but I find it fascinating because Lindquist put it so simply, it's like it's impossible to get his manifesto. I had to order this like weird book from England that took months you know, that has the manifesto at the back of it. You know why? You know why it's so hard? Because it is extremely threatening. Because the whole system we're under is geared to keeping us from standing where we're standing and knowing what's underneath where we're standing. And this is why somebody like Wendell Berry or Christopher Lash or some, you know, some of the other guiding spirits you have are so important because if you can't take responsibility for and learn about where you are and commit yourself to that, and that's the hard one, committing yourself to it, you're screwed. Um, anyway, I've wandered like over about six different topics, but, but the point here I think is, oh, because what led me to mention Lindquist was one of the key components of running beyond Baroque was learning about Venice and learning about the poets, and learning about the history of the building, and learning about the history of the community, bringing in those historic figures, bringing them, having them read with us, publishing them, getting the neighborhood, which I had also tried to, um, let's see, at that point, I had had, I had featured the local city, city council controlled neighborhood council in our theater space. We have AA there, we have all these things. And so I'd started the neighborhood council work concretely, but that was a little different, but I knew that these things were stitched together. Like, and culture is so important for understanding history. 
And if you can begin to give people a way to buy into what they've been robbed of, I mean, I know that's a bit harsh, but, but I feel, I really feel that. I mean, I end the introduction by saying I found myself in the middle of an undeclared culture, an, excuse me, undeclared war. And it's a, it's a, it's a harsh term. Um, but, but I really felt it. I felt like being grounded in neighborhood was almost impossible. It was fine if you wanted a pothole fixed. It was fine if you were okay with the community watch group. It was fine if you were okay with the various bosses that were running the neighborhood, you know, Joe down the street and Betty a couple blocks away and the dogs were running everything, whatever. But <coughs> neighborhood is more than that. And neighborhood has history. And to understand that history, you sometimes need poetry or you need film or you need gatherings, most of all. Um, and it's so barren. It's so, our society, our world is so barren. Um, anyway. Speaking of history, Fred, I want to go back to the book. And in the book, uh, a wonderful component is your historical analysis of how we got to this place. Woo! Yes, sir. From the New England town meetings down to the two-party cartel. We're locked in, right? We sure are. Can you, is it possible <laughs> to get a very brief overview of the theory, sure. that historical theory that you unwind um, so wonderfully in the book? Bless your heart. I was just rereading. Is that it. possible? It's a big story. I know. So I know, no, it's not. It shouldn't be a big story. We've okay. got this, a this minute and a half. I remember Ralph Nader saying the great thing about TV was that all people could do now was bark. <laughs> Sound bites. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, um, yes. So the town meeting to start at the beginning, or the beginning is the Mayflower Compact. People came mm -hmm. together, they made a compact to govern their conditions and take responsibility for their conditions. All all the males on the boat, there were a bunch of people who were not at the, at that compact, but they did that. And they got to New England, and that's what they started to do. And they learned, which we rarely hear about because it's so polarized, they learned from the natives. They watched how the natives governed the land and tended for it and cared for it. So anyway, New England birthed this new form, and it was completely new. Locke, John Locke, the great sort of supposed apostle of the social contract theory, actually wrote his stuff after learning about this, this basically neighborhood form of government in the United States, whoop, not the United States, in the, uh, the uh, colonies. So New Englanders come together in a meeting once a week or once a month, and they discuss what's happening in the town. They look at each other, you know, Farmer John is like grabbing the land of Farmer Tom and, uh, you know, whatever. They got to negotiate all this and they have to make laws. There were no laws. They had to make laws, and the laws were made in the town meeting, and they were judged and evaluated and et cetera. So face-to-face. Um, -face. So people were held to account. If somebody was screwing somebody else uh, economically, <laughs> um, they had to deal with it. Okay, so this started in the mid-17th century. We are talking not Jamestown, Plymouth. We're talking, I don't know what, hey, Pete, do you know when Plymouth was? <laughs> um, okay, so Virginia was 1619. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I know that as a Virginia. Or um, so it must have been a little bit after that, maybe 1620 something. Yeah, well, the plantation builders and the slave traders made the first settlement. Jamestown was a plantation. Yes. The second one was Plymouth. And this was, if you can be crude about it, anti-plantation. So these people on the Mayflower, they started this out and then it spread and it became what Hannah Arendt would call a kind of form of government, these town meetings. And they spread over New England and there were, there were clashes, but there was a lot of comity and it was troublemakers, I believe, who started the clashes with the Native Americans because there was a lot of communication back and forth, both, they were trading. Anyway, 
Okay, so you have this town meeting form of government. The British are not so happy with this because this tends to make people very independent. They don't need an overarching government sitting on top of them telling them what to do. So the farmers, mainly farmers, they were mainly farmers, um, were very ornery. And this became a problem. And Boston was the place where everybody kind of met. And that's where the clashes began that we all know so well. So, so the English, um, British tried, tried to impose their empire on New England and failed. And at, you know, at this point also, the New Englanders began to abolish slavery because there were, was some slavery in New England. This is also seldom told. Anyway, so these, guys, these people, mainly guys, yes, um, decided they need a larger form of government because the town meetings had spread. There were other settlements that were not based on a town meeting, mainly in the South, and that became a big problem. But they formed a government and with all the stuff we know, the Declaration of Independence, and then the Constitution with its Bill of Rights. So the problem of the South, where there were no town meeting, where there was no town meeting form of government, <clears throat> was that uh, there was a little problem called slavery. And in the Constitution, it said all the blacks were only three-fifths of a person. So, <laughs> And, and I mean, you, you ex explain why this is really a grievous, grievous problem. problem. Yeah, because... Aside from the racial inequity of it, it has big future implications. It has enormous future implications. And this is just not discussed. Yeah. I mean, we hear about reparations. Okay, I understand that. Absolutely. Let's do it. Figure it out, rather. Let's all get together and figure it out. But the problem with three-fifths of a person is that you're not a person, <laughs> first of all. Um, and the two-fifths that's missing is the important part, which is governance, intellect, hmm. opinion, experience. The other three-fifths are labor and unpaid labor on top of that. So it's just, it's, it's abominable chattel slavery. It is the most disgusting form of social and political organization on earth and the Americans perfected it and not only did they perfect it they modernized it and this is another thing you don't hear about so the confederacy which formed out of this slave power this enormous built-up wealth that tremendously benefited New York City and New Haven where the insurance companies were this enormous built-up wealth the South said, hey, guys, we believe in the Declaration of Independence. We believe in freedom. We believe in rights for some of us. <laughs> and the de debates between Lincoln and Douglas are amazing on this subject because Lincoln is so sharp. He's like, well, Steve, Mr. Douglas, you believe in freedom, but you don't believe in freedom for everybody. What is your freedom worth if it's not for everybody? And then he, you know, fumbles and whatever. I mean, it's full of stuff like that. Lincoln was brilliant. This is why he went so far. Although we also don't hear much about that. But um, <coughs> so the Confederacy erected on this heinous, heinous principle was defeated. And a lot of people died. It was bloody. The battle was bloody. And that should tell you something about how strongly the New Englanders especially fought. Because for them, it was heinous. It was, it was an outrage. And I think it was, I mean, it wasn't just Lincoln. It was Douglas and all these, uh, excuse me, the other Douglas, Frederick Douglas. Many who commented on the fact that, you know, the master who is right up to Malcolm X. I was just reading in Wendell Berry, a wonderful quote with by Malcolm X, which is something to the effect of nothing has damaged white people more than having these shuffling, you know, yes, massa people. This has destroyed the white people of the United States. Very interesting thought. And, and Lincoln made, you know, original observations like this. So New Englanders hated this system. 
And they led the fought. There was a wonderful film called Gettysburg. Everybody should see it. I loved that film. I think I saw it five times um, about this fight. And Joshua Chamberlain from Maine leads the you know, battle. And, and anyway, what was the battle about? The battle was about the meaning of freedom. This terrible, degraded word that is so just misused and you know, propagandized. And, 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 and the problem here is we need to reclaim the words we need to govern ourselves. We need that word freedom and we need to take it back, just like we need to take back citizenship and just, you know, uh, naturalization, not just citizenship, various things. So the Civil War was a battle over principles and the principle, in, in, to be more precise, and Lincoln was a poet, don't forget, the battle was over the meaning of principles. What do these principles mean? What does the declaration mean? Um, and the three-fifths principle, so I'll say, look, Pete, you look like you want to say something. So hold on, just give me another 30 seconds. So, no, so keep, keep going, I'm just okay. listening. Yeah. Um, Lincoln, with a lot of help, and sometimes even pressure from many people, many, many decent, honorable people who cared about human beings, who helped the slaves, and many very amazing blacks, somehow managed to pull this thing out of the fire, the Union, and put it back together. And they launched Reconstruction, one of the great liberation movements, I think I would call it, in human history, actually, that is never described as such. Eric Foner's done some great work on it following in the footsteps of his amazing historian father, Philip Foner. But <clears throat> in fact, he's made, Eric has made a lifetime of this. But Reconstruction, they first, they, first the Confederacy killed Lincoln. This is very important. Um, the, he's not called the great liberator for nothing. Um, and there's still debate over this. It's insane. Anyway, we have of, by, and for, government of, by, and for the people thanks to Lincoln. That is like about as simple as you can possibly get. It's a great axiom. I try to say it to myself every morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so we, the principles won to a great extent, and Link, but Lincoln was killed. And he was replaced with a cracker Southerner, Andrew Johnson, who then proceeded to fight Reconstruction at every step there were still a lot of Republicans, people like Thaddeus Stevens. I mean, just great people who fought. And there was a period, there was enough Reconstruction. So blacks in the South especially got some independence. But it was undone and stopped and reversed. And most important <clears throat> to this reversal, I believe, was a, a Supreme Court decision called Santa Clara versus South, what was it, Southern California Railroad. Now, I know this is obscure, but, but remember, you've heard, probably everyone's heard about this discussion over corporate personhood. Well, this is where it started, but the discussion today does not really delve into what the meaning of this horrendous maneuver was. So <clears throat> Southern, Southern Pacific, I think it was, was one of the first real cartels, which means it was a monopoly, which means it was controlling the railroads. Anyway, one of the counties out west sued them and the court i don't even i've never actually read the entire decision because the decision is not what's important what's important is what the supreme court clerk did and i just wonder what family fortune came out of that bag of cash because this is, this is 1896 by the way 1886 oh 86 okay no, it's very important because 96, I know, there's a confusion in the book. I, I made a little boo-boo there. 96 is very important. It consolidates this. But so what happened was, oh, my God, it's just, <clears throat> okay. So the clerk inserts into the description of the open, you know, like when you're describing a meeting and you say, everybody gathered and so-and-so was there and so-and-so was there. And he said, the clerk inserted a phrase that was, the consensus of the meeting was, that corporations are persons. It was not a legal decision. It was inserted by the clerk. 
in collaboration with the Chief Justice, whose name I refuse to mention. And this... <laughs> You're probably the only person in America <laughs> that won't mention. <laughs> it's just heinous. It's so... Should it's, we mention him for you, or should okay, it just be... Okay, he, go ahead. My ears it, Morrison, like, the, the infamous Morrison Waite. Morrison... <laughs> my ears are bleeding. May he live in infamy. <laughs> may he lit maybe never yeah let's oh my god anyway well his legacy lives on with us and it basically destroyed and i mean i'm becoming more and more like almost militant on this it basically destroyed the country for the future now there's been huge resistance to the print to the principles embedded in this like sentence maneuver i mean it just i mean but this is politics folks you know, this is how it works. Somebody inserts a sentence, and then the next 150 years, you're trying to get it out. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, so it's not, there is no original stain. There are several stains. Mm -hmm. And this is a big one. And why is it a big one? Because what it did for the railroad company, and I believe the, one of the parties, most likely the Democrats, were behind this because they knew, and nobody, nobody knows this. Nobody knows that the parties are corporations. Hmm. So what they snuck in was the idea that a conglomeration of people in private, out of the public sight, out of public reach, have the rights of the Bill of Rights, which means the freedom of assembly, the freedom of speech. You can't abolish them. You can't criticize them. You can't stop them. You're, you're F dot, 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 D. And um, so the consequence of this was that a kind of cartel structure for the United States grew out of this. And the subsequent court decisions confirmed this non-decision as a precedent and from there, everything that was a conglomeration of... So one thing to remember at this point is corporations in the United States were radical. This is something we don't hear much about. Originally, they were radical. What they were was the people coming together to, let's say, in the New England town, hey, we need a bridge. Yeah. We're all getting stuck in the stream. We need a bridge. So the people come together and they form a corporation, which is, which is an entity, a public entity. It can then be dissolved by the people in the next town meeting once the bridge is built. This is what was changed in 1886, this principle. And it became a secret. And this is the worst part of it, this abomination. And what I argue in the book, I don't think anyone else has ever argued, uh, it was kind of a deduction. I mean, I was thinking about this and it's like, when you put 30 people together and you give that group the rights of one person Who's going to win in a debate? <laughs> you know, it's like saying, okay, the 30 people over there have as much rights as I do, but there's 30 people there. <laughs> so it's absurd because I technically, in a way, I should have as much right as the 30 people. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, I as a citizen should have as much right to abolish Exxon as the four what 300,000 people at Exxon like I not me personally but individually coming together we have the right to govern our conditions and that means to establish and to abolish not just watch tv so so this decision effectively and thank you Elias God bless you for picking up on this and you too Pete um this actually extended no one said this, but this is my theory. I mean, it's an, intu it's an intuition. It's a political. This extended and revived the three-fifths principle. It made everyone in the United States a slave. And from there, I mean, it took a really long time because the populace, I can't call them the populace, the people revolted, the populace arose. They were fantastic, multiracial movement. You know, I mean, there were so many great people. The, 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 the stream and tradition of liberty and freedom in this country is powerful. It is still powerful. It is still strong. But that 
little decision is standing there in the way. It's what's blocking the people's power because the people will never, ever be able to have as much power as secret and private agglomerations of people that have rights to not be dissolved, to not, in a sense, to not be attacked or critiqued. I mean, this is what the two parties rest on. This is the cartel. This is what it, the principal uh, people might be familiar with the term monopoly, but this is actually, a cartel is actually more precise because it's something that, <laughs> oh my God, that is set up by the government. <clears throat> yeah. And for example, modern contemporary example, where did Bill Gates get his stuff? He got him through DARPA. Right. Or ARPA, or ARPA, I guess it was. And his mom was working for the Democratic Party. So Bill Gates got some very special favors, shall we say. So that's the example I like to cite from the present. Um, but <clears throat> so Microsoft for a long time was a cartel. And, and you can just see these things are not formed. These are no longer corporations formed by the people in assembly to address public needs. The entire structure of the society is upside down. Like science should be dedicated to informing the people about what's available, what's possible, then the people make their decision. They say, we want our rights preserved. You know, all the things that people do when they come together. And then we build our technology. We build that bridge across the stream. And if it washes out, we rebuild it. We reform the corporation. But once the bridge is built, we dissolve the corporation. Is that fast enough? <laughs> Pete is on the edge of his seat with a question. Yes, he is. Go, Pete. Yeah, no, I, you know, just to respond to that, you know, I, I totally agree. You know, I worked with uh, Ralph Nader for many years, so oh, I've, 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 I've drank the, um, the true Kool-Aid on this. That, don't use that K word, Pete. Yeah, yeah, no, I've drank, you know, I, yeah, no, what, what do you call, I guess it's the water, the, the, the truth <laughs> on this, which is that, One of the you know, cor corporate supremacy is, um, is, is, you know, strangling our democracy. Um, I do think, you know, it's not, I, I do wonder if I had to push back of it, I'd say, Please I do. do wonder if we're training people wrongly, we're misguiding people if we say that things are going to be a flip switch of, I think it like helps people to attach to like, oh, there was this one moment in 1886. And if we got that out, or if we repealed Citizens United, or if, which you is know, the direct successor of that decision. Body. It is, yes. Or like everything went wrong with the Powell memo that you know, I know started I know, I know, creating I know. this. But I do, I, I think the, the lesson we need to teach people is that there needs to be a civic wave that displaces the corporate wave. Like corporate, <clears throat> I kind of buy Eugene McCrae's argument that like, corporate capitalism is kind of like a counter-religion. It's kind of a counter-politics. It's a counter-revolution. Um, it's a counter-revolution. Like, we don't appreciate it enough as seen by its practitioners as a, like, as a, a set of things that give you meaning, a set of default options, a set of, you know, it's, it's almost yeah. a religion onto itself. Yeah. Um, and, and the only thing, you know, you can only fight an idea with an idea. And well, I, I would just... Yes, you're yep. absolutely right. But what I would say here on this one, and it, you're, you're absolutely right to bring this up, is that these corporations are not truly public, and we need public control of the corporations. The, there was a sort of weak effort at it with things called public utilities. But, but the point here is the life of the people. And I might add, Enterprise, this wonderful term called free enterprise. The big, anybody who runs a small business knows who control, run, runs the levers. It's not the small businesses. It's not the enterprising Americans. And it's the enterprising Americans that built this country. They built it. So this thing called corporations is an enemy of free enterprise as far as I'm concerned. Yep. And, and, and what is an assembly? An assembly of people to govern conditions is a free enterprise. So this is where your, your reference to the idea comes in because yes, of course, we don't need to have a history seminar here, but we have to understand the gravity. And that's why I make the link to slavery because we are in effect, 
that horrible thing. And, and it's very interesting because the word capital etymologically actually comes from the word chattel. Um, so we, we, that could be a whole discussion. But, you know, I think that what if you were to begin to think about the possibility that capital is actually not the friend of free enterprise, that it's accumulated and concentrated, and that actually wealth is, is what we all build together when we need to get something done or we want something. You know, I mean, imagine what would happen if we had an internet as the original scientists envisioned it, as a community built enterprise. Yeah. It would be totally different from what we have. All these wonderful things we have would be a lot more wonderful and with a lot less sinister elements. So you're right, absolutely, Pete. The point, not, not to make, because I don't, the point of this argument is not to make people feel powerless, but to realize they have the power. We're the, and this is what we were talking about in the Zoom session, the workshop. It's the people that make these systems function and work. So why can't we govern them? That's all I would ask. Uh, I have a favorite Lincoln quote about this um, at the Wisconsin State Fair. Like oh, I think it was before I think I know he was. You're gonna quote. Uh, before he was at in the election, um, before he was president, he was at the Wisconsin State Fair, and you read people. Uh, the one thing I will, I, I, or among many things, one thing that I think you hit the nail on completely is that this kind of radical Lincoln is not appreciated, <laughs> um, and you read his full speeches and it's all about this idea of free labor and that free labor is against slave labor, but it's also against wage labor. Right. <laughs> and he right. says, and, um, and he goes to the Wisconsin agricultural fair. Marx noted by the way, Marx noted. and Marx used to write him letters, which right. I think, uh, you know, people right. don't appreciate. I, I'd love to send the, the current Lincoln project, which is made <laughs> up of a bunch of never Trump Republicans, exactly. some of Marx and Lincoln's uh, correspondence. Um, <laughs> The, uh, yeah, he was like a, um, I think Marx was uh, writing for like the New York Herald at the time the or something. So. He hadn't yeah, even he was a journalist. And, uh, and he's at the agricultural fair and he's talking about Lincoln citizen is. power. Lincoln, Lincoln is. is. Lincoln. Lincoln, not Marx. I don't think he made it to Wisconsin. No, but, I don't uh, think so. <laughs> and he's talking about, you know, it's amazing. You're learning all these things about how to own your own land. And, oh, you know, wonderful. um we need to all come together and teach each other. And then you're going to use these skills to have your own peace. And when you have your own piece of land and we're all together in this, we're all in our small towns kind of owning things and knowing things and learning things. We, we are protected from the, and here's the quote, crowned Kings, money Kings and land Kings. Oh my God. And it's basically like, the crown kings is the American revolution against Britain and like the government. The money kings is against the New York financiers that try to control things. And the land kings is against the Southern plantation class. And what but also, but also what will happen right after Lincoln is killed is the ranchers out West who Teddy Roosevelt went out and fought the small ranchers hmm. were fighting the big ranchers. So that land problem carries on from the plantation South. Yes. Oh, I love it. Uh, Elias, may I ask one more question? Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so Fred, one of the things I love, and it just kind of, you, uh, it, 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 uh, it's so apparent as you talk, is you're kind of from this tradition of civic and radical democracy that, you know, I can only explain through this one metaphor I love that was actually from the open source community called the cathedral versus the bazaar. And um, in that and original folks essay, folks out there, that's B A Z A R. Yeah, B A yeah B A Z A A R. And you know, it was about this. It was about open source technology. But how I basically interpreted it is: there's one way to think of politics, which is there is some perfect utopian cathedral out there. We need the perfect expert engineers to build the perfect thing alone and the dream is we're all just trying we're all just scientists trying to discern you know um 
the some some perfect cathedral we're trying to build and you can say the order (laughs) the heavenly order and you the only problem with today is can be measured by how distant it is from the perfect cathedral and i just think that's totally wrong and democracy is about the bazaar it's about all of these people with all of these shops and then meeting in between it and Mm -hmm. they can be taken down and put up and it can appear anywhere and it's full of life and there's no way of saying what the perfect bazaar is. It's oh. it can only be measured by how lively it is. And, um, and more, that's more. the democracy I love. And I think you are from that tradition. Am I wrong about that? Or no, would, you're uh, absolutely right. I mean, I, I uh, uh, sometimes do find bazaars a bit bizarre, but. <laughs> no, that, that leaves me, though, going to the other side. Well, of well put, Pete. Very well put. No, Thank indeed. All, especially the Lincoln quote. Let's not forget the Lincoln quote that started you on that. No, yes. that was That's really precious. <laughs> that tells you something about a freedom tradition in this country that is, James Baldwin was wonderful. He, he made a, said a wonderful quote, we need to squeeze water from the rock of inheritance. And oh, it's wow. an incredible quote because- What a line. Because it tells us that our inheritance is a rock. Like no matter how people try and screw around with things, but, but the problem is how do you squeeze raw water from a rock? Um, and, and, and he, of course, was talking about slavery, but also many other things. Anyway, yes, right, Elias, sorry. I've got a question, and then we need to touch on your forthcoming book because we're almost out of time. Oh, man. Yeah. Here's my question. You know, on the other side of what Pete was describing, this, this wonderful, you know, local communal feeling we get in the neighborhood assembly, th- right. there are people listening who might say, you know, the idea of, of government at that scale running very much makes me uneasy. It makes me uneasy. It seems as though that might be risky. And in the book, you make a very specific comment, which is slightly startling to me, and and really got me thinking. And the and the comment is self government is our only security. Correct. That's the fundamental first principle. That, that is slightly. But but you mean we don't need the military industrial apparatus? I mean, Fred, surely you know. Isn't well, that a- who, who won the revolution against the greatest empire on the planet? Yeah, yeah, farmers, <laughs> farmers, farmer, right. farmer Joe, farmer Tom, and their right. their suffering wives. Anyway, I mean, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> self government is our only, and I emphasize the word only, security, and yeah. it's because it fosters enterprise, it fosters, as Pete would know so well, innovation, it fosters solidarity inherently and it is unbeatable it cannot be beaten it's like it's the great principle and Locke sort of did his version of it and Martin Luther King did his version of it and you know Malcolm X who's very controversial but he did his version and I mean it's unbeatable self I mean one of the reasons I love the phrase, and my one of my prof- one of my teachers, he was not a professor, uh, said, "You know, look, this system is just unreformable. Do you know how you reform it? You let the blacks in the ghettos have their own self-governing structure, and that will percolate throughout the entire system, and will change the system in the direction we want it to go. Mm-hmm. And there's a great truth in that because." The people who have the least power are the first people who should have self-government. And everyone else, I mean, we're learning so much from the blacks now. They're teaching the whole country. They're teaching the whole world. Yeah. Really. The American blacks, God bless them. They, they understand the freedom principles almost better than the whites. Yep. So self-government is our only security. I tried uh, initially the original, um, uh, flyers and leaflets that we sent out for the neighborhood council movement, which ended up being two people. Um, (laughs) Oh boy. Um, We're all about principles, the first principles. And this is my teacher, Harvey Shapiro, HR Shapiro taught me this term first principles. There's actually, I think a magazine called first principles, but it's kind of center, right. And you know, whatever, but it's a great idea. And I think the people on the left, need to reclaim this because there's actually one principle 
And it is what you just said. And I am so appreciative that you mentioned that because it is the basis of my historical analysis, but it's also, and this is so important, it's what steered me through the neighborhood council fight because I realized even when the system was trying mightily to thwart it through all kinds of gimmicks and magic shows and smoke and mirrors, and it was ferocious. The only thing that kept my head screwed on was this, that there's no security unless you govern your own conditions. It starts there. Everything starts there. Yep. Yep. And, and the practice of that self-government, as the title of your book suggests, is itself a school. That's the, that's the most important part of it. Right. Because you learn about what it means to govern your own conditions. Yeah. You come together. It's tough. It's not. I mean, somebody was very brilliant in the workshop you, you guys held. It was so much fun. Everybody out there, you should go check it out. <laughs> Um, they said, well, Fred, you said power is easy. It's the easiest thing. We talked about it in the Zoom session. We don't need to go into that whole thing. I mean, it's a great subject. But he, he, he said, I think it was a he, well, Fred, wait a second. If power is the easiest thing, why is politics so hard? Well, it's hard because we don't have what Hannah Arendt called the space of appearance. We don't have the space to come together to find out our conditions, to find them out in the first place, and then to do something about it. And that's why self-government is the only security because you know, if, you can't, if you can't talk to somebody else who is suffering under conditions, how are you going to answer them? Because you don't realize there's other people suffering the same way you are. You know, we're all suffering under these conditions now. I mean, it's just horrendous. And if you can't talk to other people and find out they're having the same problem, then you'll never get together to fix it. And so this goes directly to the problem as I talk about in the book, remedy, the subject of remedy and, and repair. Mm -hmm. Repair mm -hmm. is the big thing that we really, really need now. It's not, you know, when I speak of revolution in the book, this is crucial. I am talking about something peaceful. I'm not talking about heads on pikes, although I'm beginning to change my mind on that one, but <laughs> um, no, but I'm talking, well, all we did was change the law in the city. Now that was hard, but it actually wasn't that hard at all because the system is so blind. It's so blind. It doesn't know what's going on. It manufactures one reality after another, which gets into the subject of the next book, which is propaganda, that huh. it really doesn't know what it's doing. And Hannah Arendt did a wonderful book about somebody like this called Adolf Eichmann, who couldn't think. Why couldn't he think? Because he was a career climber, because he was whatever. He grew up in a culture that had no self-government of the people at all. There was no accountability. He could go, you know, he could invent these massive schemes that were just absolutely horrific without any recognition of what was going on. He couldn't, as Hannah Arendt put it, stand in the shoes of other people. And one of the things about the town meeting, it's like, I like to think of the town meeting principle versus, let's say, totalism or a kind of proto-totalitarianism. The clash of these two principles is what we're facing right now, I think. Mm -hmm. Because can the people come together? First of all, they have to have the space to do it. And they don't. Some do. It's still very strong in parts of the country. But this practice of understanding that self-government is our only security versus all these other claims like technology will solve our lives, the market will solve our lives. No, 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 no. Like eight people in a block coming together and saying, you know, like, wow, things are not going so well. Let's, what are we going to do about it? And the problem is they ask, what are we going to do about it? And that's where they meet the wall. That's where they meet the bulldozer. That's where they meet the local city council that couldn't give two you-know-whats about them, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem is, how do the people reclaim that understanding that their self-government that is together with others yeah. is the only security? There is no other security. There is no other security. Fred, I'm watching the clock here a little bit. And, and what you're saying reminds me that the, the difficulty at the, moment with, at the moment with some neighborhood assemblies 
is the lack of neighborly, uh, neighborliness oh, or yeah. even the, the fear of one's neighbors. Yep. So is your new book going to be in some ways touching on that? Well, I'm happy to have you as editor, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, mean, don't be, you don't want to be my editor. That's but, a limitation um, to building anything if, if we have this propagandistic notion that we can't trust each other. Well, that's really interesting. See, this is why this is a perfect example. You've just planted a thought in my head, which I hadn't really put together, because one of the texts I wanted to use is a piece I wrote on a really scandalous subject. It is embodied in a fabulous phrase by George Wallace, which was uh, captured by, um, well, there's been a couple of people that have written about it, not very much, but he was losing the election, and... He was being out racist. He, the, his opponent was being more ra Wallace was not originally a racist, huh. but he was being beaten by somebody who really, oh, yeah. really was a bad racist. This is 1968 or 72? Uh, the, 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 the phrase that he comes up with, I think, is 68, but yeah. I'm not totally sure. But he says, yeah. and there's a wonderful book on all of this, but he says he figured out the solution, which was to promise the moon and holler the N-word. Mm -hmm. yep. And Southern Well, yes, of course. It was picked up, I talk about this in the book. It was picked up by Kevin Phillips and yeah. Nixon's party organizers, and they yeah. figured out. But this principle goes, I mean, it's, it's actually an ancient principle. The idea is you, but what was new about, <laughs> what it was new about, and it came out of the Confederacy, what was new about this was you promised the moon. In other words, you don't just holler the N-word. You promise the moon first. You know, in other words, you, you say, I'm going to give you everything like we got in the Trump campaign. I'm going to give everybody jobs. I'm going to get out of the wards. I'm going to protect your health care. I'm promising you the moon, but these bad guys are after us. Yep. You know, and, and that's what he used to, you know, to break all of his promises. And Hannah Arendt says promises are the only thing that keep the society and body, body politic together. So he broke all of his promises. Anyway, when you promise the moon and holler the N-word, you divide people. And it's, it's like, that's why some of these programs that I talked about in the Zoom session on poetry, bringing the neighborhoods, getting them to cross town and talk to each other and not to be afraid of each other. Because you're absolutely right. And one of the participants in the Zoom session said, well, what about somebody who is next to me who is totally opposing what I want? Well, hello, that's politics. And, but, it, but you can't just stop there. You got to say, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the world. We're all in this world. So let's work this out because we want to protect the world. We want to... Everybody wants to protect their community. This is why I love the idea of neighborhood councils, because everyone in the neighborhood wants to protect the neighborhood. But here we come back to that originary principle. Yeah. Self-government is the only security. So everyone actually, even the people ranting and raving and shouting at each other, they also believe this. They just have a different idea of what self-government is and what security is. But it's, it's the same principle. And... So the, your question is really good, because how do you deal with this fear? How do you deal with the hatred that is stirred up by politicians yep. daily? Hatred, hatred, and 400 years of grievances. How do you deal with this? That's the right. great question. Very good. But once you bring people together, my belief is, and this, is, this was the point of Shapiro's amazing comment about giving the ghettos self-government, um, once you do that, once there's a space where people have power to govern their conditions, I really firmly believe things get worked out. And not only that, it, it, it ripples outward. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And I was thinking last night, what if we had rich lives? Like, what if we had rich neighborhoods that were full of the differences that fed each other and informed each other back to your wonderful quote, Pete, you know, go ahead, Pete. No, no, keep going. Um, what if we had a rich world? What if we had a world where 
all the knowledge formation wasn't locked away in the ivory tower? What if we had a rich world where enterprise was rewarded and protected? What if we had a rich world where people were educated? I mean, these are all things you need for self-government. And if you demand self-government, you also demand the resources to do it. That's good. That's and, good. And those resources right. include comedy, friendship, understanding, knowledge, etc. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Fred, that's great. That's that's a final vision uh, for this conversation. Um, thanks for no, thanks. no, 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 it's not final. Stop. It's just the beginning. Uh, just Democracy a is never final. That's <laughs> right. That is true. Thank God. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Pete. The bazaar continues. We will ride again. Um, All right.